Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 204, recorded for March 15th, 2023. Amazon eats pie with their own version of S3FS. Good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. Hey, Justin. Hola. Hola. Uh, Peter is not able to join us because he's at spring training. Uh, which he uh, did a great job telling us five minutes before the show recording. So <laughs> he's right on top of it as usual. Is that baseball or is that uh, sales training? Yeah, it depends what he's training in. Yeah, yeah. Is he trying out for the for the Giants? Is that where he's going? Yeah. I, mean, I think he's just attending the practices. I don't. I don't actually I know, know what he's doing. I, I mean, I'm filling in the blanks that last year he went <laughs> at this time for spring training and spring training baseball is happening now. So I assume he also is at spring training baseball, but he could be doing something else for all I know. Mm-hmm. He's a man of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's at a Greek wedding. I don't know. You, you never know what Peter. Mm-hmm. It's always something, something fun. Learning how to crochet or something. Basket weaving for cloud <laughs> professionals. You know, it's a new, it's a new, uh, new cloud certification that Foghorn's trying to get. So that's, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right. Well, uh, I mean, other things you can celebrate this week was the 17th birthday of Amazon Pi Day uh, at Amazon, where they celebrate, of course, S3, because S3 has so many dot nines uh, after its availability that they somehow find that related to Pi. Uh, And so, of course, they celebrated it with a live Twitch stream that they forgot to tell us about in advance again. Uh, (laughs) So you missed it. But I think the recording is available out there on the YouTubes if you're really looking forward to it. But uh, you know, of course, they covered many of the S3 technologies, but they also announced seven new capabilities across their data services. And the first one is uh, a bit of a surprise. Mountpoint on Amazon S3 in alpha, an open source file client for Amazon S3. Uh, and this is sort of ironic after all the time arguing that object storage isn't the same as file systems and that people using things like S3FS are doing it wrong and don't know what they're doing and shouldn't do that because that's not the thing. And so now they've created an open source version of basically their own version of S3FS that translates local file storage API calls to REST API calls on objects in S3. Uh, when using Mountpoint for S3, data lake applications that access objects using the file API can achieve high single instance transfer rates saving on their compute costs. Uh, Mountpoint for Amazon S3 supports sequential and random read operations on existing S3 objects. It does not support writing yet. Uh, and it also, uh, when it does support writes, will only support them in sequential writes. So there'll be some limitations on how this thing works. Available for Linux only in alpha and is not intended for production workloads and don't do it. And if you want to know the inside (laughs) story of why they decided to build this, uh, they have a full blog post trying to justify their change in direction, (laughs) which is a pretty (laughs) interesting read as well, uh, worth checking out. Yeah, it's been so many, so many years of arguing against just doing like the fuse, uh, you know, access pattern or these things and trying to talk people out of, you know, the more familiar ways of accessing data in S3 and, and actually making the leap to, to object that I was very surprised that they, they announced this. I did sort of suspect they might be moving in that direction when they, when they announced the strong consistency update last year, but then it didn't come for reinvent or so I, was, well, I guess so. but maybe it was late. Yeah, they're and the, you know when you read the the why did we change our minds article, they talk a lot about you know loading data into big data model sets, into machine learning, into AI, and that you know this just became a much easier thing versus you know having to force uh, an application that maybe you didn't write to be you know to do S three 
get objects. <laughs> um, so this was a, a good way to keep people from being able, you know, to prevent people from having to reinvent the wheel. And they said this was just a way to make data training faster and simpler and easier. And so we'll see where it goes. I think it'll be interesting to see if they see a lot of adoption for this and a lot of interest and if it changes their tune more or if this continues to be very, you know, very specific to read. Uh, they also talk about some of the things they'll never implement in the API or in the S3, you know, in this particular thing. Uh, things like being able to change the directory structure because of the amount of S3 puts and gets uh, that requires to do that. Um, so, you know, they talk about some limitations they'll never be able to fix just because it's not a POSIX operating system. But again, a lot of these use cases, you know, a simple read-write use case to a file directory, um, you know, can work in a lot of web apps. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's what S3FS should have been all along. I think they went a step too far and tried to try to make S3 behave like a regular file system. If they had limited scope just like this, it would have been a lot more successful. And I can see why they've done it now, because if you think about HPFS, that presents itself as a POSIX mm-hmm. file system. And what they want to do is they want S3 to be a replacement for HPFS for these big data jobs. So it makes yeah. complete sense. Yeah, I think that's the big difference between you know the S3FS is... The use case, right, is different. Like people were trying to replace it as their their network attached storage, so they had to have all those things. But just replacing, you know, a Hadoop file system, easy peasy. Yep. So. The next thing they announced at Pi Day was the AWS Data Exchange for S3 is now generally available. This enables you to find, subscribe to, and use third party data files for transfer, faster time to insights, storage cost optimization, and simplified data licensing management, and more. Uh, you know, eventually Amazon will learn how to start talking about this in terms of sustainability. <laughs> We're not there yet, but uh, yeah, not copying your data multiple times requires less storage and less power and less cooling, uh, and that's a thing. And so this is also great for uh, accessing that third-party data as well. I thought they already had that. Maybe that was Google that had that a while ago. I mean, we talked about availability of like geodata and, and map data and uh, all kinds of stuff like that, which was easy issue. Yeah, so Google has mm-hmm. it. Um, AWS has it as well, just not directly from S3. So you could you could subscribe to it, and then you'd have to go basically get it, get the object, and download it, and put it into your own S3 bucket. Uh, this now avoids all of that hassle. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, S3 multi-region access points now support replicated data sets that span multiple AWS accounts. Uh, so if you have a need to have access points that talk to multiple accounts, and so you have maybe a DR account that you want to have separated out for you know data protection reasons or for uh, Ransomware attacks, you can now do that using the S3 multi-region access point. I mean, that's that's super useful because it was having the VPC access point press three was was really good for applying policies and um, and enforcing you know use of uh, sort of the, the cheap and fast way of getting the data instead of through the public road. But it was always limited to just the region you were in, and it's such a pain because then the application has to be aware of where it is and where the data is. And I think this kind of takes that away now. Now the data can be wherever you configure it to be, and the app doesn't doesn't see that at all. Yeah, they specifically called that out in the press release that you know avoiding the need for complex request routing <laughs> logic in your app. Yeah. Well, I still I don't know if it would. I I I'm I bet money that you can't actually use this from the internal VPC endpoint, but a, a globally replicated endpoint. But just because I remember when that first was announced, there was definitely some shortcomings there, but. You know, for anything that's going through a normal access, not through directly through your VPC, this is yeah definitely a fantastic addition. Then the next one up on Pi Day announcements was aliases for S3 object Lambda access points as a CloudFront origin. 
So you can now use S3 object Lambda access points aliases as an origin for your Amazon Cloud Foundry distribution to modify the data requested. An example of how you might use this is you can dynamically transform an image depending on the device that a user is visiting from, such as a desktop or a smartphone, or convert you know, to things like WebP, which would be a really great uh, use case that I look forward to someday in the future for even the CloudPod website. <laughs> <laughs> so, supporting WebP is kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a weird, weird use case they gave because you would think that at least if you were going to resize it, you'd do it once and then store it in S3 for the next time so you didn't have the expense of the compute the second time. I, I think of other use cases, things like watermarking documents that get downloaded by clients on download so that you know if, it gets, if something gets leaked or made publicly available, you know exactly the source of, uh, of the leak. Yeah, it's interesting because it's coming from CloudFront. So you would assume that if it's already done the resize, it would just cache the resize version. So, you, but now you're not paying for the S3 storage layer, I guess. I, yeah, it is an interesting use case. Is that is a good point? Like, why not? Why not just do it once and be done with it? So yeah, interesting. Just scanning through the more detailed articles, see if they talk about yeah, creating your cache policy tied to the mm-hmm. object lambda, your width and heights. Yeah, they don't really talk about that. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah, I'm trying to think of the like the the use case that you know I built some automation around in a you know much earlier previous life was the resizing of of images for thumbnails presenting right, and so I can see how something like this would be super useful. But I wonder if the the use case is you know written this way because you wouldn't want to get rid of that original image in that case, right? You'd still want to be able to serve serve that yeah. or. You know, direct object. Yeah, it says uh, the first invocation with a specific size is processed by the Lambda function, and further requests of the same width and height that are served from the CloudFront cache. Yeah, so they are they are delivering it from the cache after the first resize operation. So again, if you don't know, I guess in that scenario, if you have you know ten thousand images, and you don't know what images people are going to use regularly, this would allow you to potentially maybe save some costs because you wouldn't need to store multiple sizes of that image. You'd only have to store it, and you'd only be storing it in the cache. When it's needed, um, so yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It'd be an interesting ROI spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, interesting because that was exactly the use case I had. We had to create uh, four different copies of the thing, and then and then lifecycle the the individual objects by how frequent they were accessed. So like, get rid of the the raw because it was you know it was raw data or for images. It was very expensive, and you don't pay for it when it's in the cache either. Which which is which is kind of neat because imagine you've got a, a picture a picture you've taken you know of some place something across the street and some terrible thing happens in the news, and that picture's linked to by uh, by by media newspapers goes on Reddit goes on Hacker News anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of a sudden you could they the consumer of that media could could specify a new size and then ten thousand people would request the object and it's cached it doesn't cost you anything in storage and it's right on the edge that's kind of yeah I guess. I think they've milked the image resizing thing now. I think that's what they use for for Lambda, you know, for the object creation, yeah, yeah. automatically resizing it and putting it back and like, nah. It's a common problem that people have to deal with. <laughs> it's understandable too, right? <laughs> like it's been solved a lot of times. Uh, next up is simplifying private activity for on-premise networks with the VPC interface endpoints for Amazon S3, now offering private DNS options that can help you more easily route Amazon S3 requests to the lowest cost endpoint in your VPC. Uh, so it's basically in the on-premise world, talking to your S3 would typically hit the public endpoint because you couldn't specify a DNS thing. Now with the private DNS option, you can specify your internal lower cost endpoint so you're not crossing the public-private zone and paying egress fees. So that's nice. 
Local Amazon S3 replication on outposts. Again, I don't know anybody who uses outposts or why you would want this feature, but hey, you have it if you need it. And then the final uh, announcement was Amazon Open Search Security Analytics, which will enable your security operations team to detect potential threats quickly while having the tools to help you with security investigations on historical data, all with lower data storage costs, killing one more reason to pay for the production Elasticsearch license. <laughs> yeah, that's a super cool feature. I missed that in the read-through. That was one of those things. I never even played with the Elasticsearch offering because it was so expensive and, and sort of impractical to roll out. But, you know, like even with my interest and my, you know, checkbook already out, I still didn't get it, still didn't do it. Yeah. It's expensive, you know? <laughs> All right, well, let's move to GCP. Uh, Google has announced their annual I.O. conference for developers will take place on May 10th near its headquarters in Mountain View, but it will involve only a limited live audience and will be open to everyone online, uh, which is the going trend for developer conferences these days. The full agenda and schedule will be published the next few weeks, but if I were to be a guessing man, I'm going to say it's going to be a lot of AI. AI, (laughs) AI, AI, uh, as well as probably the announcement of the new Nexus phone for Jonathan's purposes because Ryan and I are iPhone people. <laughs> we'll be happy with the new Nexus phone. So yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pixel phone. Nexus was the old one. Pixel phone. Whatever yeah. they call it now. I, I can't. I can't be bothered with Android. <laughs> Whatever it is, my wife will want one. Oh, they did say that an Android yeah. tablet might be coming, which that, that sort of intrigues me because you know, as little as I use my tablet, a low cost version of a tablet is pretty optimal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. There's rumors about foldable phones. See, what do you think about foldable phones? <sighs> I, I am not on board yet on the foldable phone bandwagon. I keep seeing the Samsungs, and all I can think of is like I'm going to have a quarter or a piece of a rock get stuck between those two those two pieces and just scratch the crap out of it. Yeah. Like I, I scratch my phone as it is now, and it's a flat piece of glass in my pocket. So yeah. couldn't imagine having it folded. Get off my lawn. Yeah, I just imagine like the, the sand and the dirt and the dust that get in there and the crack in the fold and just no. And I can only imagine, you know, like any any fold in anything is a repetitive stress point, right? And so it's like it's it, it feels like it's got built-in planned obsolescence, or it's you know going to have a high failure rate. Where I just don't want to deal with that. I mean, yeah. considering it replaces my phone every year, it probably doesn't matter for me. But for you, it doesn't replace your phone <laughs> every five years. A much bigger factor for you, Ryan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm every two years, to be, to be fair. But, you know, the foldable phones is, you know, what the, but the trend is, though, is that you have this great foldable screen to make it smaller and thicker, but then you put a screen on the outside to discourage people from actually having to open it in the first place. So, like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, like tech for the sake of tech, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I keep seeing the Samsung ones, and I keep, I'm intrigued because the technology has gotten better since the first version, which was you know, horrible and had to be recalled. <laughs> um, but I just, I, I just, I know Apple's rumored to be doing it, and I'm sure... Sure, I'll change my mind when Apple gets it because I'm an Apple fanboy, and I'll have to have the Apple foldable thing. But uh, I'm not really looking forward to that day. I made the same argument against the watch, and I'm like completely addicted to having my watch now. So <laughs> I'm probably gonna eat my words as well. I do love the watch. Yeah. Like, who needs a screen on their wrist? I already have the phone. Doesn't make it. <laughs> Well, speaking of AI, uh, Google also announced that AI for developers in Google Workspaces has launched several new capabilities to help developers with all your AI projects. First of all, is generative AI support in Vertex AI is now available, generative AI in the App Builder, and a new AI partnership and programs are available to you to start leveraging today to help accelerate your AI initiatives. There are new capabilities for Workspace, which for those of us who don't remember that Workspace is Google Apps every time, like myself, 
Uh, it does make it easy as a starting to a new Gmail or Google Doc. It'll, based on the topic and draft, will instantly generate a template for you. Hello, my name is Clippy. It appears you're writing a Google letter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, this better go right because it can go wrong so many ways and it's just going to make people very angry. Indeed. Uh, I, I, I like the idea of it, but again, like how it gets implemented is where all the devil is in, its, in those details. Mm-hmm. Like, do I, am I asking you to help me with a letter or are you just offering the suggestion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still got some kind of some uh, some like memes from the from the nineties when Clippy was around and the Clippy pops up. He's like, "Would you like to annoy you constantly, occasionally, or <laughs> when you least expect it?" Or just very frequently. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, I've been using um, speaking of the AI stuff, and this is relevant to the code generation thing. I've actually found a really good use for things like ChatGPT, and that is in practicing to write really good uh, stories for engineers. Because mm-hmm. once once you can kind of hone down exactly what you're asking for. You can paste it into ChatGPT and see what it does. If it doesn't quite do it right, revise what your ask is and ask again. And it's actually made me realize that you know that there's some very easy mistakes to make and there's assumptions that people make, which I think you could actually train yourself to to not make hmm. with a bit of practice. Yeah, I, I'm kind of finding the same thing, which is the you know I'm the pos- the negative results are the informative results. Like it's informing me of the input, right? Like if I ask it to write a bit of code, it's not going to write a bit of functional code, but what it is going to create is, you know, me describing the code <laughs> in a cl- much clearer way yeah. as I try to go run it through the exercise. Yeah. So. The announcement for uh, ChatGPT4 yesterday I watched, which is a, an hour long presentation. And some of it was quite, quite mind blowing. I mean, the, the, um, the guy literally had a markup of a website on a piece of paper. He drew in pencil, took a picture of it and said, turn this into an HTML page. And it did. It rendered the page in HTML with clickable JavaScript buttons and everything. It's just yeah. unbelievable. Cool. The, the data that I saw that was interesting was they were showing its uh, success rate against all of the major standardized testing. And basically it, it aces all of them, including the bar. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I cannot wait to tell my wife that. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> your wife will be super happy that she spent all that time on the bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just wait in the future; there'll be like AI priests and things. <laughs> right? <laughs> Belief. I just saw, I just Belief saw, is a service. I just saw, <laughs> <laughs> right. I just saw a trailer for some new some new show coming out on, I think Prime or something. But it was a it's a nun who is you know the AI you know is, she's trying to stop an AI. And everyone takes orders from the AI. It looks very intriguing. Mm-hmm. So a little, little cross of uh, religion and AI technology coming in the in the TV universe. On April, 20th. <laughs> <laughs> no sponsorship. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if we have the right network though. So you know, good yeah. luck to you. <laughs> Eight seven central. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Moving on to Azure, uh, Microsoft tells us that the agricultural industry is at a turning point. And while food may be seen plentiful in many global regions, the number of people going hungry has continued to increase over the last nine years. And to feed growing population, sustainability, and efficiency, uh, the way the food is produced must change. And so they've created Microsoft Azure Data Manager for Agriculture, now in preview. What began as a humble beginning with Project FarmBeats, an ambitious initiative to collect and transform agricultural data is now involved into a timely commercial solution they can charge a lot of money for. They'll help you maximize your crop yields, uh, harvest your livestock, and get to market faster and more sustainably into the future. So that's uh, lovely, Microsoft. Thanks. 
to the cloud. Rewind a couple of years to, to reinvent and AWS are talking about the same thing. They have their IoT and the refrigerated trucks. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Werner's series on whatever he's doing anymore. I don't know. Is he still doing that series? Where he walks the earth doing random, random he's still stuff? still doing it, but we, we stopped talking about it after the third episode because they were so boring. We couldn't, mm-hmm. we couldn't sustain it as a segment. So <laughs> the now go yeah. build. The, uh, the, the roti maker kind of put you off finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the roto. The, I think it was the one after the roadie maker that really yeah. turned me off to it, but I don't remember that was. But I, I have seen them occasionally in the Amazon YouTube feed, uh, and I've skipped every one of them since. So, <laughs> just can't, I can't be bothered. I mean, it's an interesting problem, right? And it's it's there's good data that you can get some really clear answers, and it's a problem that's been around for hundreds of years that you know people have been trying to solve. You think about the old farmers' almanac; like it's the exact same sort of issues and da- data that people are sort of collecting and gathering. So it's cool. I like I like this. Yeah. So just you know, there's three seasons of Now Go Build. Seasons. We have no idea. Uh, it looks like the first season was five episodes. Season two, I don't know how many there were. The website, if this is terrible. But apparently the last episode was uh, Digital Humans Learn How to Face-to-Face Interactions Are Inspiring More Meaningful Connections Between Humans and Machines. That's great. Thanks. Yeah, the food thing is interesting because although, you know, the trend may be that people are going hungry, if you look at the amount of waste in the industry, even even the waste by the time it gets to consumers, it's just ridiculous. It's like yeah, 60% yeah. of food goes in the trash instead of instead of being consumed. So maybe maybe you should look at fixing that too. Yep. A lot of waste in the food system for sure. Azure is previewing powerful and scalable virtual machines to accelerate generative AI and to burn your wallet much, much faster. The new Indy H100 V5 VM, which enables on-demand sizes ranging from eight to thousands of NVIDIA H100 GPUs interconnected by an NVIDIA Quantum 2 InfiniBand network, customers will see significantly faster performance for AI models over their last generation of the Indy A100 V4 VM. Uh, I could not even find pricing on this, but I can tell you that if you put 100... Uh, 100 GPUs on your box, you're going to pay a lot of money for that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. I would assume this is not for the average consumer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, this is definitely not for the average consumer. I did sort of like the idea that they that InfiniBand has been branded to NVIDIA Quantum 2. Because I was like, as I was reading through it, I was like, is that quantum, like quantum computing now in, in the storage layer? And then it was at InfiniBand. And I was like, oh. You just corrupted the name. Thanks. Well, I use quantum dishwasher tablets, but you know, <laughs> branding's everything. <laughs> uh, the fun thing about these is that you know they have the most amazing, uh, the most amazing GPUs you can buy. You know, and this massive throughput, and then they're like, and the fourth gen Intel Xeon scalable processors. I'm like, oh, hey, thanks for coupling it with a four-year-old CPU. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah, to be fair, it is it is impressive tech though because you know, they're up to like one point six petabits a second. Which is fairly impressive for a, a switch fabric. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> crazy. That's a lot of data. Yep. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect, only to have them be poached at the eleventh hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring. Well, I have a simple solution: Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. 
Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. All right, let's move on to our last Azure story. ChatGPT is now available on Azure OpenAI Service in Preview. We mentioned this when they announced the OpenAI Service a few weeks ago, that ChatGPT would be coming very soon. And now it's here, priced at only uh, two one-hundredths of a penny uh, per 1,000 tokens. And the billing for all ChatGPT usage begins March 13th. So I wonder if my sandbox on OpenAI is going to start charging. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, looking forward to it. That's not that too bad, actually. I think for a thousand tokens, again, I don't remember exactly how token translates to a question, but um, it's, it's a pretty reasonable one for one, from what I remember. So, you know, oh, yeah, a, a word, a word in a question or an answer is is a, is a token, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, a thousand tokens, you know, for basically two, ten, you know, less than a penny. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't no, seem too I'm, bad. I'm super impressed by how quickly this has been turned into a commercial product, though. I mean, that's the end preview is one thing. But less than two months later, actually turning it into something that you, that you can consume and bill, uh, be billed for is is quite a turnaround. I would assume it's been quite some time in the making. Yeah, I mean, OpenAI has been around what only for five or ten years, you know, five to six years, something like that, uh, and they've built this whole thing. But uh, you know, it, it seems like yeah, you know, they're expecting people are going to use a lot of tokens because yeah, you know, I keep hearing about how expensive all the compute is for for ChatGPT, and for it to only be you know less than a penny for a thousand. Uh, it seems cheap, so I'm I'm sort of curious. You know, is this a money loser for them that they still just want to do, or is it is going to be profitable for them to make money? I don't know. I think it's a scale thing. You know, you you run you run a AI bot on your website, and tens of thousands of people use it every day. I suppose it all adds up. I was going to say, I wonder if it's a barrier to entry sort of problem, right? Like the the amount of compute it takes to do something like this for you know in Azure is huge and does cost a lot, but once they've made that. And they can distribute that across, you know, thousands of users and millions of requests. Maybe it balances out. I don't know. Yeah, or they're just trying to get us get us hooked. In. It's not something that you're going to spin up by yourself and run on your own infrastructure. And it's not something that's going to be, you know, serverless in the sense that you could spin it up on demand because it has to load 800 gig of data in uh, to run the model. And so, you know, this is going to be permanent infrastructure running someplace. And these are all, you know, sort of timeshares, I guess. Priced for. Uh, Price for rapid adoption, I think, is the name of the game. <laughs> Great. All right, Oracle. I have a story uh, about revenues. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to play the sound because my ears can't handle it today. But uh, and since they don't have the decency to close the books near the rest of the cloud providers, they're just not going to get it. <laughs> but it doesn't matter ultimately because they did miss Wall Street expectations on revenue by a whisker, as it reports the fiscal third quarter 2023 results. Net income for the quarter was only $1.9 billion compared with the prior year of $2.32 billion, and revenue for the quarter was $12.4 billion. Operating expenses jumped 37% for the year prior because of all those Oracle Cloud garages they're building. Uh, and there's a quote from the CEO, our strong quarterly earnings growth was driven by 48% constant currency growth for the total revenue of our two cloud businesses, infrastructure and application, she said. And Oracle's cloud business now exceeds $16 billion in annualized revenue. Uh, you know, growth of 20% is great, but, uh, inc- you know, loss of uh, profitability of 20% lower earnings per share, not so great. So uh, all eyes are on fourth quarter for Oracle. Yeah, they're still forecasting 50% growth by, by next year. It's kind of, 
they apparently aren't living in the same economy you and I are living in. (laughs) So (laughs) they they must already have the lawyers like on deck. Yeah, like we're gonna hit this number through lawsuit or hook or crook. So. Find out they even find out they're the real secret behind ChatGPT all this time. They're gonna come after you for licensing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for new news this week. Let's move on to our cloud journey series. And this is our final part on migrations. Uh, we're gonna cover the cloud tools from the hyperscalers to help you with your migration. And just kind of talk about some of those real quick. Uh, and then talk a little bit about whether you should outsource your migration or what the benefits of that could be. Uh, Peter's not here to defend the why you should migrate side, so we'll try to do our best Peter impression, uh, but uh, we'll get there. <laughs> so uh, AWS uh, is kind of the beginning place. Uh, you know, they've been in this market the longest. I'd say they have the most tooling available, uh, and, you know, they, we talked about a lot of tooling they've even announced in the last few years for acquisitions. Um, but some of the big highlights for me are, you know, the migration evaluator to actually help you build a data-driven business case for migrating to AWS. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, AWS app discovery services are pretty great. And then, of course, database migration service is probably the other big one that most people hear about, uh, which is really driving your database from on-prem to or cloud, but it also has many capabilities, including moving you from something like Oracle to Postgres or SQL Server to Postgres, um, which are all pretty great. But the, mm-hmm. quite a few tools. Any, uh, any thoughts on the tools from Amazon here? I think the data sync tools are nice because that's something that everyone has to invent, and it's, it's, um, it's one less thing to have to worry about. On you know, cause of a day. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard problem to solve, right? In doing it right in a consistent manner, anyway. And then you know, like these tools are great enough that I've even used it for for DR and backup purposes, you know, pretty easily. Um, before they had you know more native tools doing that, and I'm sure it's the same technology under the hood, so it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, some of the you know Amazon has some specialty ones too, SAP mainframes for AWS and Oracle and AWS. But uh, you know, one of the things that they were really the beginner of was the Snow family of products, which is really the, you know, here's a hard drive to ship your data to us because uh, you can't move you know, data faster than on a truck, <laughs> you know, when you can uh, put it all on, you know, thousands of gigabytes or terabytes or petabytes into a truck and ship it. Um, you know, that's pretty fast data transfer considering wire speeds these days. Uh, and then the other one that was interesting on the list too was uh, the transfer family. They considered the transfer family to be part of their migration tooling strategy. Um, which is not how I see SFTP services, but hey, I appreciate you know Amazon saying it. I mean, it's been a thorn in the side of every migration I've been a part of. Is you know how are we going to operate FTP securely in the cloud? So I, I kind of get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so GCP has a bunch of tools as well, and uh, they have a couple that I think are interesting as well. So they do have a, a common unified platform for migration center to track your overall migration strategy. Um, I don't know why we don't use that at the day job, but no just learned about it. <laughs> uh, of course, they have some specialty tools like BigQuery Data Transfer Service, which helps you move your data to BigQuery because they can charge you lots of money for that. So that makes sense. Uh, they do have a database migration uh, tool, which just data migrates you to Google Cloud databases at a global scale. And they also have a database migration service very similar to, uh, to AWS's. And then they have a transfer appliance as well. They just call it the transfer appliance because Google's boring at naming, <laughs> uh, which is a ruggedized server to collect and physically move data from field locations, limited activity, or from data centers for ultra low cost data transfers. They do have a storage data transfer service as well. And then uh, I remember seeing at Google Next many years ago with Ryan as we were gawking at all the lights and they started presenting migrate to containers. They actually have a pretty clean uh, migration to container program actually move your application from a physical server or VM to a container. 
I've yet to use this. It's on my wish list mm-hmm. to do, but uh, allegedly it works really well. I've heard positive things. I also have a migration to virtual machines capability as well as SAP specialties, and then a bunch of modernization frameworks available to you as well for all things like data centers, data lakes, mainframes, et cetera, that gets into specific best practices. I totally forgot about that tool because I remember they, I think they announced that it supported .NET out of the gate. And it did, yeah. And I still, to this day, go, no. <laughs> yeah, like maybe some limited use cases or, you know, as long as it's the, the .NET Core framework or, you know, like I want to know because it's it's so hard to get that on just other servers sometimes. Like it's got something they can just put it in a container. Yeah, we should take a look at that because it, it seems they, they seem to make some very large promises about migrating apps from running VMs into containers. Mm-hmm. They make some big promises. So I'd, I'd love to actually use it and try it out and see how it works out. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I my my guess is that it's probably like converting a Word doc to an HTML page. Like, yes, it's it's HTML that works technically, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. not clean and it's not easy to modify <laughs> afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Azure actually had a very few tools. I was surprised about this. Uh, Azure Migrate, of course, is a unified single dashboard for migration. Apparently, that's a thing that all the third party vendors have. Uh, Azure Site Recovery, which really specializes in specifically the DR use cases that you may have. They do have a database migration service, which really is not about moving you to different things, but just moving your data to their managed services. And then the mercilessly mocked data box here at the CloudPod uh, <laughs> to help you move your data between Azure and uh, your on-prem environments. And then they have uh, they highlighted their Microsoft Cost Manager tooling as a big part of their migration toolbox to help you make sure you're not overpaying for all your migration needs. Yeah, it's like, look how much more expensive it would be if you moved these licenses to a different cloud provider. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they, and that is a big part of their play. They have a huge advantage there mm-hmm. um, if you're running Windows or Microsoft SQL workloads. Like, it's genius, actually. Yeah, I was just looking at, um, you know, Windows 2012 is reaching end of life in October. And so, you know, we're we're got some plans of getting some boxes retired out of the system and, you know, I was looking at the end of life announcement. They're like, well, but if you want three more years, you can just put it on Azure and you'll get three more years of support and security updates for Windows 2012. And I'm like, it's well played, well played. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but they did figure out they can make money on that because they now offer a new uh, enhanced security update service that they'll charge you for if you're on software assurance. So they can now, because they had to update the security stuff for the Azure site anyways, and I was going to sell it to you for extra money. Uh, well, so well played, Microsoft. Oh, so they can sell it if you're not an Azure customer. Nice. Yes. Make money on both yeah, sides. Not entirely, not entirely surprised that there are a whole lot more migration services available from um, you know everyone except Azure because I guess if you're already in the UK system, then it makes it's a no-brainer to move to, to Azure. But and who really wants to migrate their their workloads there unless they absolutely have to? <laughs> well, Microsoft shops <laughs> like to move their data there. But, uh, yeah. I mean, the next one has even less, which is OCI. Uh, they don't even have a section on their website called migration like the other three. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I had to go search around and so, you know, they said they have custom and third-party app modernization migration strategies. They've got ISV apps and SaaS modernizations. They got data and database migrations. And then they have a special one, MySQL Heatwave migration, where they get you onto MySQL Heatwave for lots of money, uh, all available to OCI customers. So, yeah, not a lot of help from OCI. Uh, I'm sure they're going to partner you to a third-party uh, on the OCI side of the house. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 a lot to manage for anybody though, and I, I you know I appreciate the the tooling they provide to kind of in lieu of a, a project manager to help you keep track of those things like the the, uh, the migration hub or the migration center. But ultimately, um, I think any any medium to large size migration you shouldn't 
do this alone. You know, you really need somebody with expertise in migrations. Are you segueing us, Jonathan? I am. Well, well done. Well done. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, like, my net of that was that all that all we just talked about was really confusing to you, and you have no idea what we just talked about, and you're trying to contemplate your your AWS migration. Yeah, partners can be your best friend, <laughs> like Foghorn, <laughs> uh, and they can help you really navigate the system. They've got a lot of experience with these tools, helping you plot out your migration program. They can help you with ROI. They can help you with TCO analysis. They can, they can do a lot of things. They also can get you more attention from the vendors because, you know, if you're a little, you know, Amazon in particular is bad about this where, oh, we're going to be spending $100,000 today, but in two years we're going to be spending $10 million a month. Uh, Amazon doesn't give a crap about you because you're only spending $100,000 today. It's not about what you are in the future to Amazon. It's about what you are today. And so it's sometimes hard to get that attention. And so a partner can help you adjust uh, some of those expectations. And that's why Google and Azure have some success against Amazon because they come in and they realize the true long-term value of the customer, not the immediate short-term value of the Amazon approach. Yeah, I think I think for some specific use cases, it's it's very it's very worthwhile going with partners who've worked closely with the vendors in the thinking about things like SAP. Um, it's worth working with a with a partner like uh, Proterra, who we, inter- we we interviewed for TCP Talks a while ago. Um, in migration to the cloud because there are there are, there are the, right way, the right way to, to do things and certainly the wrong way to do things it can be very expensive. There's lots of wrong ways. <laughs> so yeah, if you'd like to not learn those wrong ways yourself the hard way, you can get a, you know that partner can help you avoid some of those too, which is a, a big plus. All right, well I think I think that's where we wrap up our migration series. Um, if you guys would like us to talk about something, you know, ping us on our Slack team or send a, a message to pod at thecloudpod.net uh, with your suggestions for what you'd like to hear us talk about next. Uh, we've got a list, so if you don't come to us with ideas, we'll we'll make you suffer with another one of our choices. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you how you felt about the CCOE series and now the migration series. Uh, we'd love to talk about many, many more things. But uh, you know, what are you guys? Or what are you interested in? What are your challenges? Let us know at the Cloud Pod. Have a great week, you guys. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Uh, so um, something happened in Silicon Valley last week, you guys. A bank failed. The biggest bank in Silicon Valley. 16th largest in the United States, apparently. Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, which, shocked to find that out. Yeah. You know, by, by this time, you know, when we recorded last week, it was just starting to become a thing. And then it failed on Friday. And then it you know, got taken over by the government. And now it's back up and running. But uh, it's still not over. Because even today, Wednesday at the 15th, you know, there's still... Uh, banks in trouble. <laughs> First Republic Bank is still suffering in stock. I saw UK Bank today. I think was uh, suffering as well. But uh, overall, you know, like as a millennial, I'm starting to really hate uh, reliving all the 1920s failures <laughs> uh, repeatedly. It's uh, you know pandemic and uh, now bank failures. You know, second financial crisis potentially on the verge. You know, recessionary headwinds. You know, it's it's really getting kind of old. I don't know about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, you know packing up and heading out west to farm grapes instead. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> the Dust Bowl soon. Yeah. This is yeah. Dust Bowl is what's next, right? Yeah. yeah great. I, locusts at some point, you know, and <laughs> trying to think of other plagues that have happened. World War II, you know, nuclear bombs, you know, like all there's all kinds of fun, you know, fun things yeah. we can repeat that I really wish we didn't. So yeah. um, you know, two thousand eight, you know, was a very similar type of event where uh, you know, the catalyst for the big 2008 crash was Lehman Brothers crashing. And, you know, everyone was very quick to say that SVB is not the same thing as Lehman Brothers. And it's not a, a fundamental issue. But uh, it's been sort of fun to kind of watch them, you know, talk about how they failed and why they failed. Uh, and come to find out, you know, regulation sort of matters in a bank. And when you go and get protection, you know, protections and restrictions and regulations removed by the president, uh, you know, you, uh, you, but your bank fails when things get tough, <laughs> when interest rates start climbing. And so, uh, these lower regionalized, uh, banks are struggling pretty badly, uh, in potentially, you know, because of last administration making changes, regulations, which is not great. Yeah. I mean, really it was a run on the bank that kind of caused the problem. If, if there hadn't been a run on the bank because of the knee jerk reaction to the announcement that they had such a loss because of their terrible investment in bonds, um, you know, they well, it wouldn't it be an issue immediately. Mm, that's you not know, the first thing, though. Yeah. I mean, the, the bond that's thing isn't really a problem per se, right? The issue is that, you know, because the, the bank had a problem, right? We had a ton of deposits coming in during, you know, during the pandemic. When this, you know, startups were booming. They catered heavily to startup businesses. You know, they they can save money and they'll save money to extend runway as long as they can. And so they invest that money into, you know, bonds with a 1.8% return rate basically. And then as the interest rates have climbed, the bond return now is 5%. So the reality is, is that not recapitalizing that money into a higher rate bond is losing the money. So you have to go sell those bonds to go buy new bonds at the higher rate. And because they're, of course, at 1.8%, you have to take a discount and you take a loss. They take a $1.8 billion loss. They had to go raise $2 billion in capital. They announced that publicly the same day that I think it was Constellation basically imploded from crypto investments they had made as a bank. Um, and the stock market got spooked. And then Peter Thiel and the Founders Fund basically said, pull your money <laughs> and run for the hills. And then it just kind of falls apart very quickly from there. Um, but, you know, the the biggest issue, at least what I've seen, is, you know, they their communication was terrible. They should have lined up funding for the $2 billion raise they needed to do before they announced it. Uh, and then the fact that they um, they didn't hedge their risk on those bonds because typically a bank will hedge the risk uh, with another type of investment mechanism to basically protect them in case the interest rates do climb. Um, and now you're stuck with low yield bonds that you need to sell on the market. They should have hedged that and they didn't. So that was, those are the two big major issues. And then Peter Thiel, you know, being Peter Thiel, you know, you had to wonder like, what did he have against Silicon Valley Bank <laughs> now that he's moved it to Austin and gotten into California? Uh, that he told all of his investments to basically flee uh, and cause that run. I mean, I'm not so convinced that he's that nefarious where he's, you know, it's that pinpointed thing. Like, I, I think it's much more com- likely that he's just making knee-jerk reactions and statements that have wide-ranging impacts. I mean, but, he could be. The irony is SVB was trying to do the right thing in, in getting their their balance sheets a little bit more balanced so that they had... Um, money in case there was a run on the bank, which caused the run on the bank. Like it's, it is really sort of a, like a, an interesting situation where, you know, like I think if they had been a little less above board, they could have probably weathered this storm, but. Yeah. I guess if they'd hedged their risk and, or or they'd, you know, properly reached out to investors in advance, apparently though, you know, in back off, you know, 
in Wall Street, they have been concerned about the bank's balance sheet for a while. But I was like looking at the, you know, analysts' opinions about the bank, you know, prior to this happening, and they weren't really downgrading them at a level that would make you think there was a major concern. So, you know, there's definitely some parts of the system that seem like they failed. <laughs> It'll be an interesting case study mm-hmm. in some textbook in about 10 years about how not to communicate <laughs> things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe pay attention to the fact that another bank just failed because of crypto. Maybe you shouldn't talk about any potential chance of you failing on the same day. Mm. I, I think that the funniest thing I've seen come out of this whole thing is the uh, the photoshopped Spirit of Halloween poster on, <laughs> on, on, on the SVB oh, building. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good, though. Whoever did that, you know, my hat's off to you. That's pretty great. I love some of the hot takes though, that are really terrible on this as well. Like, uh, I don't remember which Republican senator or House congressional person was out there saying, well, it's Silicon Valley Bank was too woke. And I'm like, what does that mean? And then he goes on to talk about yeah. all their ESG investments and you know ESG things they were doing for environmental sustainability and growth. And I'm just like, wow, that's a that's a far stretch. <laughs> this is a pure yeah. capitalization <laughs> risk mistake, and you're you're saying it's too woke. <laughs> like, just, yeah. Like it's such a weird, uh, weird time in politics that we're in these days. Yeah. <laughs> luckily, the, not about the accuracy. <laughs> yeah, not high in accuracy. Luckily, the bank, yeah. uh, you know, the, the federal government stepped in and guaranteed the depositors uh, that their money would be safe, and you know, shareholders lost their shorts. But that's the risk of shareholders. You know, that's why you, you know, pay those money. So I don't, I don't have any feel bad feelings for the shareholders who lost their money. But uh, you know, I'm glad the startups that all have payroll and a lot of things over the weekend were trying to figure out floats for their money that was stuck in Silicon Valley Bank uh, came out of this relatively whole. So that would have been a really, you know, the 120,000 people who have been laid off this year would have been much, much worse <laughs> yeah. if, uh, if Silicon oh, Valley man. Bank actually had failed completely. Yeah. No, I mean, that was I, the, the reaction to, to swoop in and sort of take control of all the assets and then guarantee the funds above and beyond what the, the FDIC has already insured. And within 48 hours, like governments don't move that fast, man. <laughs> it was pretty spectacular to avoid a pretty nasty economic disaster. Well, I mean, the FDIC is actually, I think, one of the better running parts of the banking system, you know, and the government and oversight committee, right? You know, the, their process, because, you know, banks fail not on an unregular basis, right? It does happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they have a pretty clean process where they come in on a Friday, shut down the bank, you know, basically lock the doors, retain the people they need to keep the bank moving. And then they find another player to buy the assets to keep the bank basically afloat. Uh, and that's worked tremendously well. I mean, Lehman Brothers got sold in a fire sale to Morgan Stanley, I think, or not more, or was it Chase? I don't know. I don't remember because it's 2008 is a decade yeah. ago. But um you know, that was a, uh, you know, they do a really good job. And if you really need to read, learn about the FDIC and like read up on it, it's a really interesting organization and protection mechanism that exists in the U.S. monetary policy. Yeah. And I, I mean, this exercised it to a, a very public and grand scale. And so if anything, I think it just speaks to like maybe, you know, get it, you know, getting more resources poured in that direction and, and raising the rates of which, which they can ensure. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I don't know anything else about Silicon Valley Bank. About I mean, we're definitely not investors or uh, people mm-hmm. you take financial advice from. So, like our our knowledge is a uh, cursory for what we've read on the internet and research we've done, which is uh, as yeah. best we can say about it. <laughs> but do not make investment advice on this on what we just talked about because we don't know what we're talking about beyond. Yes, yeah. my money's in a mattress that's buried in my backyard. So, yeah. Yeah. mattress is looking pretty good over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I don't bank there, but uh, you know. <laughs> 
I, you know, it does make me a second think, you know, because like uh, I've been a Wells Fargo customer for a very long time and, you know, they, uh, they had their scandals and I've sort of had this like illusion that I want to maybe change my bank at some point. And so like I've, I've thought about others and, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was not high on my list because they don't really have any branches near me, but, you know, it's definitely a local bank I would have thought about. <laughs> and so now, <laughs> I, you know, now you're thinking, oh, maybe I just want to stay with Wells Fargo or maybe I want to move to Chase or maybe I want to move to another big national bank that I don't have to worry about failing. Uh, maybe that's the right way to go. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it does definitely makes you think a little differently about some of the stuff. Yeah. I mean, which bank do you choose though? I mean, I, I, in a way, I think perhaps they're all as bad as each other. Uh, Bank of America certainly is, but I mean, um, but what kind of message does it send to people who operate small banks, though, if if they can go ahead and and make these mistakes or or deliberately put people's money at risk, knowing that the government will step in and and bail bail them out? I mean, I mean, this is the whole reason why Dodd Frank exists, right? Is to prevent this from happening. That's why the the fact that they you know basically lifted the capitalization requirements of small regional banks. After you know, Silicon Valley Bank poured a bunch of money into lobbyists to get into you know the prior administration's ear to lift those regulations from Dodd Frank. You know that's it. Just shows that was a mistake. That's a bad choice, and the regulations would have prevented a lot of this problem from happening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, this really had me looking into like I've I've banked at a credit union for for quite a while just because I've the the banking institutions just sort of bother me. Um. You know, because they're too woke. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so I just tried it. But I had to definitely look into, like, because I, like, are they, is a credit union at the same risk? Just because they're typically not a for-profit business um, doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have capital investments to cover their books and, and that kind of thing. So it's it's definitely something that, you know, it's good to pay attention to because we, we do assume and we put a lot of trust in in a currency in general, which is all just a, a giant lie we all share. So, <laughs> yeah, the interesting thing about credit unions is they don't they're not actually insured by the FDIC. They're insured by a different organization called the NCUA, <laughs> which basically has the same stipulations, but the the whole risk management system in a credit union is completely different. Um, yeah. And so, but similar, so it's, it makes it even more confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was you know it's one of those things where I was like. Uh, I think this is different. It's not. This is still still just as much risk as any other other bank. Yep. And in some ways more so because they have you know, they they don't have typically the large portfolio books that you know other banks do or, or diversification in their expenses and stuff. So it's uh, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the larger of a corporation or an entity you are, the more you can hedge, right? The more the more you can diversify and sort of cover all the bases. The smaller, any smaller entity is always going to suffer. Sounds scary. Agreed. All right, guys. I'll talk to you next week. Yep. See you later. Have a good night. See ya. See ya. Bye.